Good afternoon, everyone. This is Anne from Portland, Maine, and I want to say happy anniversary to California Dreaming. It's an awesome podcast. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers, you want to see the audience that you're reaching, and you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, Visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcasts and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and review on iTunes or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge. So it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. This week, I'd like to thank Kenny, Chae, Monique A, and Susan S for joining Patreon, and Caitlin O, Barbara J, Kristen M, and Kathy H. for raising their support to the next tier. And if you're not interested in a monthly donation, you can help with a one-time donation to the show through our PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and keeping us ad-free, so thank you. If you've been a listener of the show for some time now, you know that sometimes we step outside of California and discuss cases in other states and other countries and other parts of the world. We call it the vacation series. Sometimes I'll dedicate a case to someone. Sometimes we vote on it. I'd like to do it more often, but at the same time, I don't want to stray too far from what the show is meant to be. I do think that we have plenty of California stories in our catalog for us to be able to visit other places for other cases that intrigue us without losing too much of our identity as a dedicated California podcast. We went to Texas recently to talk about Rodney Reed, and you may have heard that the state of Texas has granted Rodney's request for a reprieve, so he is currently no longer scheduled to be executed this week. Thank goodness. And we recently covered a case out of Utah that we did as a gesture of appreciation for one of our Facebook admins. But California will always be at the heart of the show. And even if California isn't the primary backdrop of a crime, it still qualifies as far as I'm concerned. 
Even if California is just a tiny footnote of a story, I'm good with that. I even recently joked with David that I don't care if a murderer had a layover in California. That's good enough for me. And the story we're going to cover today, well, it's a little bit more than a layover. The story had its beginnings here in California, but ended up becoming a perplexing mystery that unfolded in what is known as the heartland. What is the heartland? Well, generally, the heartland includes all the states that do not touch an ocean. It's also known as the Midwest, and the heartland isn't just a region, but it is also a culture. A culture of small towns, rural and rustic areas with simple, honest, hardworking, blue-collar ideals and values. Now, there is also a divide within the heartland. There's the small heartland, and there's the big heartland. The small heartland is what is traditional Midwest. North Dakota, South Dakota, Illinois, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, and Ohio. The big heartland is all of those states, plus Montana, Kentucky, Idaho, Colorado, Oklahoma, Nevada, West Virginia, Wyoming, Utah, Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas. Though the heartland is usually thought of as the first set of states that I listed as the small heartland. Which kind of makes sense. I mean, when was the last time any of you considered Nevada the heartland of America? Yeah, me neither. But it doesn't touch any ocean, so it is included in the broader definition. The heartland, while it includes an area of the country known as the Bible Belt, not all the heartland states are considered a part of that region. The Bible Belt is mainly in the south. It is an informal name for this region, which has historically been comprised of socially conservative and religious ideals where religion is a major factor in social and political issues. States in the Bible Belt include northern Georgia, Tennessee, parts of Alabama, Mississippi, North Carolina, West Virginia, South Carolina, and most of Texas and most of Oklahoma, as well as the southernmost parts of some states like Virginia, Kentucky, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Missouri. Louisiana and much of Central and South Florida, as well as South Texas, are not included because those areas had largely been settled by Catholic immigrants, where the Bible Belt consists of various Christian denominations. And a fun fact, when it comes to the 48 contiguous states, the geographic center is Lebanon, Kansas. When you factor in the addition of Hawaii and Alaska to the Union, the geographic center moved north to South Dakota. Our story today is somewhat of a mystery, and it does, in fact, take place in the heartland of America. But the family had their roots, their beginnings, right here in California. And we're going to talk about them in this 117th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Lost in the Heartland.
if there was ever a town that was quintessential heartland, it would be Johnson City, Kansas. The Wikipedia page on this town is scant, as is the city's website. The population as of 2016 is less than 1,400, and the premier attraction is the Stanton County Museum. It can be a tight-knit community, but just as easily as its residents can have a sense of togetherness, things can also divide the small town. And if you are not a local, the town is not welcoming to outsiders, not in the least. So when Deb Golub arrived in town, the reception was chilly. She was originally from California. She had been married. They had two children, a daughter, Chrissy, and a son, Mike, who was 16 when they settled down in the small town. Deb's husband, the father of her children, he had passed away. So she eventually became involved in a relationship with a man named Jim Hines. They had met at a lounge in Victorville, California. They were both there, out for an evening of fun, when they just started dancing with one another. Before long, it became serious. Serious enough for Deb to uproot her family out of California and head to Jim's hometown, Johnson City. The year was 1994. At the time, the population was slightly higher than it is today. And being newcomers, well, the reception was the same then as it would be today or at any point in time. It was clear from the onset that they were outsiders and they were always going to be. Deb's daughter Christy opted to stay in California. That is a big change. I know, being a native Californian, the thought of moving to small town USA would be a tough decision. And until I began looking into the story, I had no idea that small towns were so standoffish when it came to new residents. That isn't a thing in California population 40 million. Johnson City was not welcoming at all of Deb and Mike when they decided to move there in 1994. Despite staying in California, Chrissy promised that she would be in touch regularly as she and her brother Mike were close and she did not ever want to lose that connection. Staying close to family was important. Despite the 1,200 miles or 1,930 kilometers that would now be between them. One of the first local teens to take notice of Mike, who would eventually be given the nickname California Mike, was Danae Muir. And true to small-town form, she was put off by the new guy. She described him as being kind of a wise-ass. He came to town and right off the bat, he came off as kind of smug and arrogant, It always had these sort of outlandish stories that he'd tell, and everyone was like, yeah, okay, right. He was just way out there, so they figured that he was blowing a lot of hot air. But when Danae got to know him and his mom a little bit better, she came to find that his stories weren't all just fluff. There was something to them, and they were actually real stories. Over time, California Mike won her over, And before long, Danae was drawn into his exuberant sense of humor. He would be sharing his stories and they'd be laughing until they were in tears. 
California Mike also cracked the unwelcoming exterior of local couple Steve and Shannon Morris. They had the same impression as Danae had of Mike when they first met him. Full of himself, brash, way too overconfident for their taste. But they too soon saw past all that and saw that Mike was actually a pretty decent guy with a good heart. He was caring and generous, and not only that, when you were around him, he made you feel really good, even if you were kind of having a downer of a day. Being around him was uplifting. And according to Mike's best friend and stepbrother, Bo Hines, not only did Mike have a boundless sense of humor, he was also very intelligent. And when he was at work, he was focused, determined, and dedicated. Living in Johnson City, he got a job working as a mechanic for Eric Kramer. It did not take long for Eric to realize how valuable Mike was when it came to his know-how and ability to fix whatever it was that was in disrepair. Of Mike, Eric said that he was so dependable, he can give him just about any task and he'd be able to figure it out, no matter how complicated. He was excellent at his job. Within a year of moving to Johnson City, Mike encountered another transplant. Her name was Shannon Albers. This is another Shannon in our story, so here towards the beginning when I'm talking about both of them, I'll refer to them by both their first and last names. She had come to town from Montana, but not quite as big of a leap as moving from California, but still, to the locals, an outsider is an outsider. And from very early on, after meeting Shannon Albers, Mike had taken a liking to her. According to Mike's mom, Deb, he and Shannon seemed to be a good match. They hit it off, and they seemed to be getting along just fine, though she did say that things moved along pretty quickly for the young couple. It was like they met and their relationship was just off and running. They wanted to hang out, they wanted to party, and they wanted to do it together and be together all the time. But according to Mike's friend, Shannon Morris, it soon became clear, or at least to her, that Shannon Albers was not completely pleased with Mike. After some time had passed and the fun and good times sort of gave way to life, according to Shannon Morris, Shannon Albers began complaining about Mike. And soon that was all she was hearing from her. Constant griping, and all of it had to do with money. That Mike wasn't making enough money, and it was a constant issue for her. Mike's friend and stepbrother Bo recalled hearing Shannon Albers say that she has caviar tastes on a hot dog budget. And it was common for her to put Mike down and belittle him for what she saw as the menial wages that he was earning. And to me, this all sounds absurd. It's like you move from Montana to Johnson City, population 1400. Mike is a mechanic, albeit a really good mechanic, but how much is he really going to be able to bring home in a tiny town? You can only do so much work. If she's got this caviar taste, then why the heck is she in a hot dog town? And I really don't know how much or how little Mike was earning, but you also have to factor in the cost of living, which is lower in these smaller, more rural cities. I just looked up apartments for rent in Johnson City, and mind you, this is 2019 Johnson City, 
1995 Johnson City. And there are currently 39 apartments for rent. And they range in price from about $450 to $800 a month. And the $800 places are upwards of three bedrooms and they are brand new. Here in Southern California, a brand new three-bedroom apartment would be at the very least $3,000 a month. So we can imagine back in the mid-90s, it was relatively cheap living in Johnson City. But anyway, Shannon Albers' complaining really served no purpose other than to drag Mike in front of his friends. And it wasn't going to help him find more work or make more money. And I'm not even sure what, if anything, she was doing to contribute. Probably not a whole lot, since much of her energy was spent putting Mike down. And it certainly didn't make matters any better when the couple welcomed a child into the mix. A boy named Mikey. The birth of their son, indeed, should have been the highlight of both of their lives. But it certainly did nothing in the way of improving the fractured relationship between Mike and Shannon. But according to Deb, Mikey was everything to her son. He embraced becoming a father, and it came to him with such ease. Mikey was the most important thing in Mike's life. But if Shannon had been complaining about the finances before, having a son was only going to decrease their resources even more. None of us here listening to the story had even thought for a second that having a kid would bring this couple closer together because we already know that money was at the heart of the problems that this couple had. So if any of Mike's and Shannon's friends thought that the arrival of little Mikey would help bring the couple closer together, they were sorely mistaken. Things had gotten so bad, the fighting eventually became physical, prompting Shannon to call the police. She accused Mike of choking her, so he was placed under arrest and was facing charges related to domestic violence. The charges were subsequently dropped, but Shannon did move out of the home that she shared with Mike, and she took their son with her. According to Mike's mom, the physical altercation between her son and Shannon resulted in Mike having placed his hand on Shannon's throat to keep her away. Now, we don't know for sure what actually went down in that fight, though we do know that Mike was the one who was arrested. If she was charging at him, that may have been the way that he was holding her away from him, but the charges were eventually dropped, but we just don't know who the aggressor was. Shannon, I mean, just based on her incessant complaining, I wouldn't put it past her to have been the one to instigate the fighting, but it does take two. And apparently Mike was really, really in love with Shannon Albers despite everything, so when she left with their son, he was really broken up about it. He wasn't really doing well, and it was an extremely low point for him. Mike's friends could see how hard he was taking it. And then something that so rarely happens with someone as young as Mike, he was only 24 years old when he'd had a heart attack. He had a congenital heart condition that caused this heart attack, and Mike almost lost his life as a result. And a thing like that, an experience where you almost meet your maker, it can be life-altering. The fact that Mike survived this, 
it was a wake-up call for him. He had talked to his friends about it. To him, it was clear that it wasn't his time, and for whatever reason, God had given him another chance, more time on this earth. He looked at this second chance at life as a very special gift that he should not take for granted. His friends called it a turning point in his life. What that really meant, we can only guess, but just because the single most contentious thing in his life at the time was his relationship with Shannon Albers, we can only assume that part of this turning point involved moving on from the toxicity of that. It had been hard on him, their breakup. A brush with death can certainly put everything into perspective, like not wasting time dwelling on the past and what could have been. And Mike was ready to move on. And by moving on, I mean a new lady who had grabbed his attention, Brooke Wilkerson. She was like a breath of fresh air when Mike needed it most. They both had a yearning for adventure, and his friends could see the change in Mike not long after Brooke came into the picture. They had spent so much time seeing him hurting over Shannon. It was nice and refreshing to see Mike get back to the happy, fun-loving person that they had once known him to be. Brooke was just what he needed in a partner. Mike's friends were pleased with his relationship with Brooke. And in 2004, the couple welcomed a son that they named Cameron. By that time, Mike had really come into his own. He had settled down, he was completely happy with Brooke, and was just thrilled to add another child to his little family. Those who knew Mike would say that he had finally reached a point of contentment with where his life was at. He was absolutely in love with Brooke and adored Cameron, and he loved being a dad. He had told his sister Christy a number of times that all he wanted to do was be the dad that they didn't have. But remember, their dad didn't abandon them. He had passed away. While I am not clear if it was related to the same congenital heart condition that Mike had, but because of that near-fatal heart attack at the age of 24, Mike knew how fragile his life was. And he knew all too well how hard it was to have lost his dad at a young age. So it was important to Mike to do everything that he could to not only take care of his son and Brooke, but also himself, so he could be there for them for a really long time. Before long, Mike was tossing around the M-word. He was on the verge of asking Brooke to marry him. So what about Shannon Albers, Mike's ex-girlfriend with whom he shared a son, little Mikey? What was going on with her? Well, it seems as though as a small town as Johnson City was, there was at least one really prominent local family that had money. And she quickly zeroed in on that family. Specifically, Chad Floyd. And he was a member of one of the most wealthy and prominent, not to mention powerful and well-connected families in Johnson City. So who is Chad Floyd? Well, his family had roots in Johnson City dating back to the late 1800s. The Floyds, along with John Frederick Winger, arrived in Stanton County, Kansas in 1887. 
They set down roots and went into the farming business, which earned both families their fortunes. And Chad, along with his twin brother Clint, a local attorney with his office right there on Main Street, they were heirs to the Floyd family fortune. Next door to his law office was the bank, which, of course, cousin Chris Floyd was president. And adjacent to that are all the farm offices of the Floyds as well as the Winger families. So they continued to have their stronghold on the city throughout the 20th century and well into the 21st. Everyone knew the Floyds. They either knew them, were related to them, or they worked for them. The Floyds were the fabric of Johnson City and its history. So knowing what we know about Shannon Albers and her champagne wishes and caviar dreams, it's no big surprise that she got Chad Floyd into her sights, locked in and married him, and she became Shannon Floyd. Chad and Shannon, they're a handsome couple, and people are quick to say that Shannon married Chad purely for the money. But I mean, it's not like she married some old rich guy. He was young and wealthy, and the big motivator may have been his money, but he was also a pretty good catch otherwise. But Shannon still garnered the reputation of being a gold digger despite that. And based on all her moaning and whining about money, it's pretty clear that she was on the hunt for it when she came into her next relationship. And with Chad Floyd, she hit the jackpot. But of course, with the child between them, Shannon and Mike were still in each other's lives, but it was not civil by any stretch of the imagination. They bickered constantly over their son, Mikey, but now with Chad Floyd in the mix, things only got worse. Mike had been demanding more time with little Mikey, and of course, his grandma Deb wanted to spend time with him as well, but Shannon and Chad began pulling back limiting the time that they were willing to let Mikey spend with his dad more and more. Before long, Mike and Deb were relegated to seeing little Mikey only every other weekend. So what that amounts to maybe four days a month, if that. From what I read on this custody arrangement, it seems as though it was something that was put into place informally between them. I don't think that the courts had been involved. Otherwise, I do believe there would have been more time allotted for dad's parenting time. Every other weekend is clearly not enough, but Shannon and Chad didn't even want to allow for that. They'd have preferred that Mike not be in the picture at all. Of course, Mike was fighting tooth and nail for his time, and he wasn't going to walk away. His children were the two most important things in his life. There was no chance that he was going to not be a father to his eldest son. But the every other weekend scheduled seemed to work, at least for a time. All that would change on Friday, May 20th, 2005. It was Mike's weekend to have little Mikey, who was five years old by this time. Mike was actually at work, out in the field with the crew, about 20 miles or 32 kilometers away from Johnson City. At some point, he had received a call from Shannon asking him to come over to pick up their son for the weekend. He told his crew and his boss that he needed to go get his son, at which point he had to borrow his boss's work truck because he did not have his own vehicle at the site. He drove off, headed over to get his son, 
And as Mike drove away from his crew, with the exception of one random sighting of Mike about 20 minutes later over in Johnson City, that was the last time anyone has ever seen or heard from Mike Golub again. There has not been a trace of him anywhere in the last 14 and a half years. Mike never showed back up at the work site with his boss's truck or his son. And then when he failed to show up at home, word quickly spread among his friends that he was missing. They began calling each other to see if anyone had heard from him. And once everyone they could think of had been contacted, the worry really set in. And the first thing Mike's closest friends began to suspect was that Shannon Floyd had something to do with Mike being missing. It was no secret that she and Chad were very unhappy with Mike's presence in little Mikey's life. And they didn't put it past Shannon for a second that she would have had a hand in something happening to him, just so she could eliminate him from her son's life once and for all. Mike's friends and his mom, they were just all beside themselves when Mike disappeared. There is nothing that would have kept him away from his children. So they knew immediately that something was very, very wrong. And everyone suspected not only his ex, Shannon, but also her husband, Chad Floyd. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that he came from a very prominent and powerful family in the community. He is very arrogant and very conceited and full of himself. It's sort of in his blood. He's from that family the family that had pretty much run their town for more than a century. He's got generations of influence and connections to the town. They own most of the businesses, they're in possession of and control of most of the money, and they pretty much run Johnson City themselves. And the residents are sort of like their subjects because there, it's all about the money. And to be clear, the community did not live in fear of the powerful Floyd family. They don't control things through fear or intimidation. But everyone in the town are basically just suck-ups, and they treat the Floyds like they're some sort of small-town royalty or something. And that was just a big, huge worry for Mike's family and friends. When they say that everyone bows down to the Floyds, that includes the small-town law enforcement. Is a family that pretty much controls the entire town going to be thoroughly and fairly investigated if any one of their family members is suspected of a serious crime? Is it possible that the prominence of a family like that have an effect on how law enforcement conducts their investigation? Absolutely. Remember Martha Moxley? How the police treated the Skakel family with kid gloves because of their prominence in Greenwich, Connecticut? Or how about John and Patsy Ramsey? When rich, powerful, prominent families become tangled up in serious crime, oftentimes they are not treated the same way as the average citizen. And that was a very real concern for Mike's family when they started to think that foul play was involved and that Shannon and her very well-connected husband may have had something to do with it. So what makes everybody so sure that they had a hand in this? Well, 
We are talking about a small town here. The numbers of people with a potential motive is pretty narrow. And if you look at it simply for what it is, you have this relationship between Chad and Shannon. He's married to her, but she also comes with baggage. Namely, a kid who, because his wife doesn't want the child's dad involved at all, he has to pretty much raise the kid as his own. Is it possible that Chad's going to have some resentment? Sure it is. And who is he likely going to be resentful towards? Well, he's not going to want to hold Shannon responsible. He certainly can't blame the kid. So the easiest person to really hold a grudge against is Mike, the dad. And if Mike and Shannon are constantly bickering over the kid, the stress over that is likely to boil over into Shannon's relationship with Chad. Blending families isn't going to work if everyone is at war, especially over custody and parenting time. But parents fight over custody all the time, right? And most of the time, it doesn't lead to someone going missing or worse. So when Mike disappeared, just because he was at odds with Shannon and Chad over little Mikey, doesn't mean that they had anything to do with Mike having gone missing. The fact is, nobody knows what happened to him. But in this case, there was a little bit more to the story than just fighting over custody. You see, Shannon, she was a very, very controlling person over the manner in which she and Mike exchanged their son when it came time for visits. She demanded some very specific instructions that Mike was to follow when it came to picking their son up and dropping him off. He had to have a car seat, which isn't out of the ordinary, but he was also to never come to the home where she lived with her new husband. They settled on a neutral place, a local convenience store. And that isn't unusual either in these situations with fighting parents. But for the entire time that she was married to Chad and did these exchanges with Mike, she never allowed him to come to her house. There had been only one occasion that Mike's mom knew of when he actually picked their son up at their house, and it was for his son's birthday. I'm not clear as to why Shannon allowed Mike to pick him up at her home this particular time but the amount of time that Mike was near or anywhere on the Floyd property that is if he even set foot onto it was very minimal and as soon as he picked little Mikey up he left other than that Shannon was adamant that Mike steer clear of coming anywhere near her home except on the day that Mike was last seen On that Friday, May 20th, 2005, Mike was about 20 miles outside of Johnson City working with a crew out in the field. Doing what? I don't know. That's what it was he was doing, just working, and the job site was 20 miles or 32 kilometers outside of town. And on that particular afternoon, Shannon called Mike and requested that he do something that she had never, ever wanted him to do previously come to her house to get their son. He was anxious to go, so his boss let Mike borrow his truck and make the drive into Johnson City to pick up his kid, at which point Mike left the job site and drove towards town. 
About 20 minutes later, the local high school football coach would later report to investigators that he saw Mike in Johnson City, and this would be at 6.20 p.m. Mike was near the corner of Lake Street and Logan Avenue, which is about 9 miles or 14 kilometers away from Shannon and Chad's house. And that would be the last known sighting of Mike. When Mike was reported missing and his boss's work truck was still missing too, Shannon reported to police that Mike never showed up at her home to pick up their son. The following day, Mike failed to show up for work and you know he had borrowed his boss's truck to pick up his son the afternoon before. So his boss Eric thought perhaps Mike had been involved in an accident somewhere in between the work site that he had departed from and Shannon's house. Eric also happened to be a helicopter pilot, so he went and flew over some of the areas where he thought Mike may have driven. If there had been an accident, he might be able to spot it from the air, but he wasn't able to find anything. However, five days after Mike had gone missing, his boss's truck was found abandoned in an isolated area. When the place where the truck was found and the truck itself was investigated, there was no indication of any foul play, no damage to the truck, no blood, nothing. The discovery of the truck only raised more questions. It was a confounding mystery. What in the world happened to Mike? It was as if he just vanished off the face of the earth. But to Mike's mom, she was quite well aware of the problems that he'd been having with Shannon and her new husband. The problems between them had been going on for quite some time, and to her, she never really saw any end to it. And because of that, there is no doubt in her mind that Mike was a victim of some sort of foul play and that Shannon and Chad Floyd were behind it. They were the only people in the small town who were angry enough at Mike, who had made it abundantly clear that they wanted nothing to do with him, but had no choice in the matter because he was Mikey's dad. Mike's mom knew how much Shannon hated her son, and she absolutely believed that hatred ran deep, deep enough for her and Chad to do her son harm. She was certain of it. And yeah, when you really think about it, if you take a look around this tiny town, if not Shannon and Chad, then who? You know, when we see some of these murder cases, whether it's a small town or a big city, so many times we hear the family and friends of the victim say that they had not an enemy in the world. And oftentimes it's true. Their killer is someone random, some stranger, someone who didn't know or have a bone to pick with the victim. And it makes the investigation challenging because there is nobody in the life of the victim that wanted to do them harm. But apply that same standard to Mike Golub. Did he have an enemy in the world? Well, yeah, he did. Exactly one. And when enemy number one got married the number of enemies Mike had in the world doubled. And as police began their work looking into Mike's disappearance, investigators' interests did turn towards Shannon and Chad Floyd when they caught wind that the couple were making moves to leave Johnson City. Now, the desire to move can be looked at two different ways. One can question, 
Why would they want to leave a town that is essentially the foundation of Chad and his entire family's history? The family practically founded the city, and all he ever knew was right there in Johnson City. But on the flip side of that, one can say, why would they not want to leave? A small town can be stifling. There's only so much you can do, only so far you're ever going to go and see in life. The only thing there for them was farming. Maybe they dreamt of bigger and better things than what Johnson City had to offer. The investigation revealed that the couple had been inquiring about real estate in Colorado. Johnson City is only 27 miles or 43 kilometers from the Colorado border. The closest big city, Colorado Springs, only 235 miles or 378 kilometers away. The investigation also revealed that Shannon and Chad had spoken to a child custody representative with the state of Kansas named Sally Ochoa. And when detectives spoke to her, they asked her if the couple had sought advice regarding moving out of state with the child that Shannon had shared with Mike. She said that she couldn't say for sure that they had their plan set in stone, but it was something that they were taking into serious consideration as they spoke with her to explore their options in terms of sharing custody with Mike across state lines. And she said that she had to be honest with them. If they chose to relocate out of the state of Kansas, they would most likely lose primary custody of little Mikey to his dad. Needless to say, Shannon and Chad were not pleased with her answers. Chad apparently had it set in his mind that he wanted out of Johnson City and out of Kansas And now not only has Mike been a problem for him in general, insisting on being a constant presence in little Mikey's life. I mean, how dare him, right? And this in turn caused Mike to be a constant presence in Chad's life and his life with Shannon. But now Mike has become a big obstacle standing in the way of Chad's desires to start over fresh in Colorado. If it weren't for Mike, if Mike simply ceased to exist well, then all their problems would dissipate. To investigators, it all adds up to a motive to want to cause Mike to disappear. The local law enforcement decided that they needed to call in an outside agency to assist in the investigation. So they contacted the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, or the KBI. When the KBI came knocking on Chad's door, he was not happy and he immediately laid into the sheriff. Because remember, Chad's family runs this town. If the investigation were left up to the sheriff, everyone knew damn well that they'd only be spinning their wheels. The Floyd family was way too connected and way too influential, and Chad would have essentially been untouchable. So yeah, he was angry. Why did they have to go and bring the KBI into this, dragging them into his business? And detectives were like, you know exactly why. And it was at that point that Chad understood that he wasn't going to be able to step all over the KBI like he was going to be able to do with the sheriff. It wasn't going to be that easy. The KBI doesn't give a rat's ass who Chad's family is. They don't know him. They're not on the Floyd family payroll. They have one goal here, and that's to get to the bottom of what happened to Mike Golub 
that's it. The first place at KBI started to look was at Shannon and Chad's finances to get an idea of what's been going on with them in the days and weeks leading up to Mike's disappearance. There was one thing that immediately jumped out at them as they started digging into their records. Only two weeks prior to Mike having gone missing, Chad had cashed out a chunk of his family's stock to the tune of $50,000. When the KBI started poking around and asking questions, they found out from Chad's cousin, and remember I mentioned him earlier, Chris Floyd, the bank president. Yeah, the KBI learned from him what Chad wanted the money for. You see, Chad decided he was going to try and pay Mike off to get him to give up custody of his son and to get out of Johnson City. He had gone to the bank, he cashed out the stocks, and when Chris asked him what the money was for, that's what he told him. It was essentially a bribe to get Mike to just go away and leave his son behind. So is that what happened here? Is that the story Chad and Shannon Floyd were going to try to sell? But they paid Mike to go away and that's what he did? Yeah, that's basically what they're telling the KBI. Could it be possible that what they're saying is true? That they offered Mike this money to get out of town and relinquish custody of his son to Shannon and Chad and he accepted it? Anything is possible at this point as there had been absolutely no trace of Mike found. But ask his mom and she will tell you not a chance on earth that Mike would do that. He would not have accepted any amount of money from the Floyds to walk away from his son. And he especially would not have done so to leave little Mikey in the care of Shannon and Chad. Never would have happened. There is simply not enough money in the world for Mike to agree to a deal like that. And the KBI was not so quick to buy the bribe scenario either. So about six weeks after Mike's disappearance, the KBI obtained and executed a search warrant for the Floyd residence. They had received information that Shannon herself had repainted the front deck of the home within a matter of days following Mike having gone missing. So a part of the search involved the disassembling of the entire front deck. And what do you know? On the underside of the wooden slats of the deck, where it had not been painted, investigators discovered traces of blood and traces of biological material. And when tested, it was a match to Mike's DNA. So now they have the hard questions to ask Shannon and Chad. If Mike had never set foot on your property, then how the hell did his DNA end up on the underside of your deck. The KBI had also received information that the Floyds had one of their front window panes of their house replaced. They tracked down the window repair person and asked what it was that needed fixing. The window repair person said that the window wasn't shattered, but it had a hole in it. And if this already isn't beginning to stink the KBI found even more damning information regarding Chad Floyd. On the same day that Mike was last seen, Chad had made a dubious purchase. He went to see a cousin of his and purchased an unregistered, untraceable rifle from him. 
So a theory of what happened to Mike began to materialize as these details about what was going on at the Floyd home began to emerge and it wasn't looking good. According to Mike's boss, Eric, Mike had received a call that afternoon that he went missing to come pick up his son at the home of his ex-girlfriend, Shannon, who now resided with her new husband. Though having Mike actually come to her house or even set foot onto her property was something that she absolutely forbade him to do previously. She and her husband were adamant about it. They didn't want him anywhere near their home. Yet on this day, she strayed from that and asked him to come to the house. So you have to think, why? Why this sudden change? We can only speculate on that. But, you know, we know how the day ends. So Mike showed up at the house. We can only assume that he walked up to the front door to knock or ring the doorbell. And because we know Shannon repainted the front deck, because we know that the deck was dismantled and Mike's biological material was found to be on the underside of the deck's boards, and because we know that they had a window pane on the front of their house recently replaced, and because we know that the repair person said that that pane of glass had a hole in it, and because we know that the same day that Mike disappeared, Chad had purchased an untraceable rifle from a cousin, and because we know that Mike has never been seen since that day, a logical conclusion can be drawn that is when Mike stood on that front deck, Chad, standing inside the home on the other side of that window pane, took aim with his rifle, fired a shot through the glass, leaving that hole, striking Mike as he stood on the porch, at which time Mike fell and deposited his biological material onto the deck. And from there, he was done away with. Since Mike's disappearance, his mother, Deb, has just been beside herself with fear and grief and emptiness, and she missed him terribly. It is unlike any pain losing a child, especially when you really don't know what became of them. It would be something Deb would never be able to let go of. And to make everything that much worse, she had been forbidden from seeing little Mikey, too. Shannon would not allow Deb to see him. She wants nothing to do with Deb. In a sense, Deb not only lost a son, but a grandson too. And the only thing about that that makes sense to Deb is that Shannon is afraid. She's afraid that Mikey might know something or might say something incriminating to his grandma. Little Mikey was five on the day that his dad disappeared. He may have had some information, He may have been able to answer some simple questions, but investigators didn't speak to him. I don't think it would have mattered anyway, because I do believe little Mikey wasn't there at the home when all of this happened, and I will get into those details in a little bit. And sadly, the biggest obstacle to overcome in this whole thing was the fact that they didn't have Mike. There was no trace of him. He was nowhere to be found. And if he was dead, they had no body to prove it. If they'd been able to find his body, then they'd have a wealth of evidence to work with, including what kind of bullet he was killed with if he was indeed shot to death. 
And the KBI actually had a slightly different theory as to what type of weapon Mike may have been shot with. They don't think it was the rifle that Chad had purchased from his cousin that day because he had actually turned that gun over to police. Chad would have had a chance to get rid of the weapon if it was indeed the one that he shot Mike with. If Mike's body were to be found, then it would be easy to make that ballistics match. Would Chad have been so willing to turn the murder weapon over like that? On the off chance that Mike's body was recovered? No, he wouldn't have. But he did. He was not afraid or worried about giving them that rifle. But here's the thing. Chad was the registered owner of a Glock pistol. And that Glock has never been accounted for. They know he owned it, but it has somehow inexplicably disappeared. And going on the advice of his attorney, Chad has refused to answer questions about the whereabouts of that gun. So that was the end of that. The KBI believe Chad shot Mike through the window of his house as Mike stood on the deck with his Glock, not the rifle. So next, the phone records of Chad and Shannon were examined, and it only fueled the suspicion surrounding the couple. Okay, remember Shannon called Mike just before 6 p.m. to come to the house to pick Mikey up. He was 20 miles or 32 kilometers away. At 6.20, he was spotted on the corner of Lake Street and Logan Avenue, which was 9 miles or 14 kilometers away from Shannon and Chad's house. So in 20 minutes, he had traveled a little more than half the distance to their place. Then 18 minutes later, beginning at 6.38 p.m. and 6.57 p.m., there was a flurry of 10 phone calls between Chad and Shannon. It is strongly believed that as Mike made his way towards the Floyd home, Shannon left the home with her children in order to have them away from the property as Chad prepared to commit the murder. And it was sometime leading up to the first in that series of calls that Mike was killed. This theory does leave people wondering, if Chad had just committed this murder, there are a lot of things that he needs to be doing that do not involve him being on the phone. He's just killed somebody. They've got to get into the cover-up phase of this, and it's going to be highly stressful, and likely he's going to be in a panic. So why are they calling each other? Well, they've got to work on this together, and they probably know that text messages can come back and haunt them. So they have to communicate with phone calls. They have no choice but to work out the cover-up on the phone. They are the only people who know about this. They only have each other to confide in as they go through the process of getting rid of Mike. It's not out of the question for me that they'd be on the phone frequently, and it was quite smart to think of the possibility of the text messages, even deleted ones, being retrieved at a later time. Their attorney would say it's ridiculous to think that someone who has the task of getting rid of a body is going to be on the phone over and over again. They've got more pressing issues at hand, no time to make phone calls. Now, Deb has no doubt that Chad and Shannon Floyd are the ones that caused her son's disappearance, 
As incredulous as it may seem that these people would kill somebody over child custody, Deb has no doubts. And they are hardly criminal masterminds, yet they've somehow managed to hide his body so well that it's never been found. There are some theories to that, that perhaps they've buried Mike in a clandestine grave someplace remote where searchers have been unable to locate him. Or they could have deposited him into an abandoned well. And if that were the case, then it is almost certain that Mike is gone forever. So this case that is slowly being pieced together against the Floyds is circumstantial. That includes the call to pick up Mikey at the Floyd house, the freshly painted deck, Mike's biological material found on the underside of that deck, the repaired broken window, the Glock that's never been accounted for, and the phone calls between Chad and Shannon around the exact time Mike would have shown up at their home to pick Mikey up. One year after Mike's disappearance, a warrant for Chad and Shannon's arrest was issued for first-degree murder, and they were taken into custody and charged accordingly. Their bail was set at $1 million each, and within weeks, Chad's dad had not only put up the money and had the couple out on bail, he had also assembled them a team of the best lawyers in the state of Kansas to represent them. And a year after that, in 2007, their trial began. A jury sat and listened to two weeks of testimony. And after closing arguments, they retired to conduct their deliberations. And it took them two days to come to the conclusion that they could not come to a conclusion. They told the court that they were hopelessly deadlocked. And with that, the judge declared a mistrial. For Deb... She was so certain that even a jury from small-town Johnson City would be able to clearly see the story that the evidence told. But after the mistrial, she just wasn't sure anymore. Now, there really isn't anything to indicate that the jury had been swayed or affected in any way by the prominence of the Floyd family. But Mike's friends, they're not so sure, and I tend to agree. Based on what we have learned here thus far about the influence and power that the family had in the small town, I mean, how could it not be a factor? And in a small town, how likely is it that the Floyd family knew at least some of the individuals who sat on that jury panel? It's highly likely. Remember, everybody knows everybody. It seems almost impossible to get around that. And yeah, Mike's friends are convinced that any other jury in any other place in the country that heard the same exact evidence presented at their trial would have been able to convict. The influence of the Floyds, they believe, strongly impacted the way the jury went with their decision. But the prosecutors were not ready to give up on the case that they had against Shannon and Chad. And they were not ready to give up on the citizens of Johnson City. And by all appearances, it seemed to be just no sweat off Chad's back when he was dragged back into court to face the same charges again. Because as the judge was telling him what the state was accusing him of, he yawned and he pleaded not guilty for a second time. He wasn't worried. Same charges, same court, 
same pool of jurors from the same tiny town. And what about a change of venue? Well, in Kansas, only the defense can ask for that. So it goes without saying that Chad and Shannon aren't the least bit interested in taking their case into another county. In this town, the Floyds are people that everybody knows. If someone gets on this jury, it's not just going to be some random person on trial that nobody knows and won't care about after the fact. Everyone in some fashion is connected to the Floyds, either through friends, through family, through work. A fair trial seems virtually impossible. But the prosecutor and the district attorney had to try. And the tensions in the small town as the trial got underway began to heighten. People closely associated with the Floyds were being made to take the stand and testify against Chad and Shannon, only making things more tense and awkward. Chad's cousin Chris, the bank president, who had cashed out those family stocks for him prior to Mike's disappearance, he had to get on the stand and testify as to what he knew of Chad's plans to pay Mike off so he would leave town and relinquish custody. But that ended up working against the prosecution's case because he followed his testimony up that it was his belief that Mike accepted the bribe and left town. Which is a possible theory, maybe, seeing as Mike's body has never been found. But Chris also testified to this. He told the court that he had this to say to Chad. If you had anything to do with this, then why are you making things difficult for the investigators? And Chad responded, wouldn't you cover? You wouldn't even cover for your wife? And Chris answered, not for murder. And Chad responded, and that's where you and I are different. And besides, they can't prosecute without a body. And there were people who saw Mike just before he disappeared. He had attended a function at Little Mikey's school. And he did not appear like he was preparing to leave his child and his life behind forever. He was engaged with his son, very loving, very close, very happy to be there. If someone had said that Mike was dumping his life in Johnson and leaving his son behind for $50,000, they'd say, no way, not that dad. And besides, the investigation had revealed that Mike never did take that money because Chad and Shannon put the money into another bank account outside of Johnson City. So yeah, that right there blew the Mike left town on a bribe theory right out of the water. He had turned down the money, and those two idiots, who would have been better off just burning the money, put it in another account at a bank out of town. Like, did they not think that investigators would have been able to track the money down? I mean, come on, how stupid can you be? A co-worker of Chad's named John Nickel was called to testify. Chad had made some statements directly to him about Mike that were pretty incriminating. There was an occasion when Chad had become so enraged and yelled in his face that if Mike ever tried to take custody of little Mikey, he would kill him. Another co-worker named Ray Winters testified that Chad said to him that it would be simple to make Mike disappear, and he said he would do so by disposing of him into a well. 
And Chad had pretty much been convinced that as long as there was no body, there was no way that he would be found guilty of anything. But they did have that DNA that belonged to Mike under the deck. That seems it would be difficult to explain away, but Floyd's defense attorney was able to get the state's expert criminalist to say that she could not be certain how his DNA got there. The defense proposed this possible scenario. Say if Mike had once stood on the deck and spit, then Mike's DNA could have been deposited that way because skin cells and blood cells can be found in the saliva. She agreed, yes, that was possible. That was the key to Floyd's defense, planting seeds of doubt that hopefully amounted to reasonable doubt. And it also left everyone asking this question. Why was Mike's DNA found on the porch and no one else's? No DNA from Chad, none from Shannon, none from the children. While Mike's DNA was found on the underside on the unpainted areas of the deck, Shannon had just repainted the boards on top. The only way DNA could have ended up on the bottom of those deck boards is if DNA was spilled and seeped between them. What are the chances of anyone else depositing DNA by way of any kind of bodily fluids onto that deck in the time between it was repainted and the time it was dismantled and searched? Personally, I think only Mike's DNA was there because he was the only person to ever bleed on it. So when the trace evidence found under the deck, along with all the circumstantial evidence looking pretty darn bad for the Floyds, what's a defense team to do? They start going low, attacking the victim, smearing the character of a man who isn't there to defend himself. Mike's best friend and stepbrother, Bo, he was questioned on the stand as to what he knew about Mike and his history of substance abuse. How bad the problem was is unclear, and it was many years prior to his disappearance that this was even a thing. Bo testified that he had knowledge that Mike had used marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamines, all while drinking alcohol at the same time. And in the days leading up to Mike's disappearance, there had been a significant drug bust in Johnson City. The police did confirm that Mike had no involvement in that. The defense called up a witness who insinuated that Mike had told her that he was the one that called in a tip about that drug house. And he was concerned that if he was going to be found out, someone would be out to get him. She claimed that he told her, I did something that's going to piss off a lot of people, and believe me, I could disappear and nobody would ever find me. Of course, Mike's family had no idea where that information came from. The witness could be just making it all up, but they say there is no basis for any of that to be true at all. And if people from Johnson City know anything about Johnson City then they'll tell you it's hardly a town overrun with hardcore drug lords who off snitches like that. The drug bust, it was hardly what it was made out to be in court. This is not a town drowning in illicit drug dealing. Most people from this town would hardly even know what a big-time drug dealer is. If you wanted drugs, you headed into the city, not into Johnson City. 
and to say otherwise is absurd and just plain stupid. The defense had more in its arsenal. They put forth an alternative theory that perhaps Mike went missing as a result of an affair Brooke had been having. The defense again peppered Mike's stepbrother about it, that Mike had been telling him that he and Brooke were fighting and it all had to do with perceived affairs. He testified yes, but there was really no basis for the worry. There wasn't anything to it. They had talked it out, and he had calmed Mike down, telling him, you know, she loves you. You love her. It's not a thing. But not to the defense. It was very much a possibility that Mike could have found out about an affair. He could have gotten in somebody's face over it. A physical altercation may have ensued, and Brooke's lover got the best of him and did away with Mike. Is it possible? Enough to raise reasonable doubt? Perhaps. Everything about Mike had been put on trial in the second time around. His past history with drugs, his character, his relationship with Brooke. The defense had no shame in assailing him every which way with impunity because he was not there to stand up for himself. It became the trial of the state versus the life and character of Mike Golub instead of the state versus Chad and Shannon Floyd. Shattering Mike's mom even more in addition to this was the defense's continual insistence that because there is no body, there is still the possibility that he is alive and out there and not wanting to be found. The defense said this in closing. Maybe he's on a beach in Mexico, wearing his shades, thinking, those suckers, I got my revenge. I ain't paying child support to nobody now. Mike's mom could hardly take it, but she remained confident. And in the prosecutor's closing, he reminded the jury of what I had mentioned earlier. There were only two people in the small town of Johnson City that wanted Mike gone. These defendants, Chad and Shannon Floyd, and that was it. The case was handed to the jury. They barely deliberated for no more than five hours over the course of one afternoon. And the following morning, when they came to the judge with a note, they said they were deadlocked. The judge was like, um, no, go back and deliberate some more. But after two more days, they remained the same, deadlocked, hopelessly, seven to five, not sure which way was the split. The judge for a second time declared a mistrial and there would not be a third unless more new and compelling evidence comes to light. So as of November of 2008, the charges against the Floyds were officially dropped. And with that, Chad and Shannon Floyd were free to go on with their lives. And as for Mike's mom, Deb, it was utter defeat. She had lost her son. She'd lost her grandson. And she never stopped asking pleading to see him but Shannon all but continued to refuse and she would never budge Chad and Shannon Floyd left Johnson City 
and took Deb's grandson with them. And for a while, she had no idea where they went. Shannon, little Mikey, and another son she had were eventually found living in Burlington, Colorado. Chad was not around much. He had earned his commercial driver's license and was on the road driving a semi most of his time. And as of this recording, Mike Golub has still never been found and is still considered to be a missing person. Today, there continues to be one person still holding out hope that someday Mike will be found. Jim Hines, the man who more than two and a half decades earlier swept Deb Golub off her feet and asked her to leave California and come start a new life with him in Johnson City, Kansas. But some 10 years or so after they set down roots in the small town together, their lives were turned upside down when Deb's son, who had come with her to Kansas, and Jim's stepson inexplicably went missing. It was a huge loss, of course, for Mike's mom, but it was also a tremendous loss for Jim as well, who loved Mike like his own. In January of 2011, almost six years after Mike had gone missing, Jim had taken Deb to Dodge City, Kansas for a night at the casino to celebrate Deb's 60th birthday. The next day, Jim discovered Deb had quietly passed away during the night as she slept. Try as she might to have always had a smile on her face, the grief of losing Mike and never having seen her grandson again took an emotional toll on her. That, along with the two hung juries, all of it was more than she could take. As the years had passed, though, there was an anonymous person living in Burlington, Colorado, who would surreptitiously send newspaper clippings from the local newspaper to Jim and Deb whenever their grandson was featured in the paper for a school function. They never knew who the person was that sent them those clippings, but it was so kind and so thoughtful, and it meant the world to Deb that someone out there knew and understood and cared enough to take the time to do that for them. Mike's younger son, Cameron, that he had had with his then-girlfriend, Brooke, who wasn't even a year old when Mike went missing, remained close with Jim and Deb. Brooke was able to pick up the pieces as her life was shattered too when Mike disappeared, leaving her to raise a baby on her own. She too went on to marry and move on with her life, but she never lost touch with Deb and Jim, and they remained a constant presence in Cameron's life, as he was their last and only connection to Mike left in this world for them. When Deb passed away, little Mikey would have been 11 years old. He was not present at Deb's funeral, but he was certainly listed as a survivor. It's been rumored that police were at Deb's funeral services to keep an eye out for Mike, in case he decided to quietly and secretly attend. But there was no indication that he did. The current sheriff did say that they attended Deb's funeral to pay their respects to her, and to extend their condolences to the family. The county sheriff, who led the initial investigation into Mike's disappearance, 
who decided it would be best to bring in the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. He retired in 2013, but was killed in a car accident in 2016. And as of the last we heard from Jim Hines, which was in a 2018 article in the Hutchinson News, he continues to hope that someday he'll be able to see little Mikey again. Today, he would be 20 years old. And that will bring this 117th episode of California Dreaming to a close. I would encourage you to come on over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss the cases we cover. We share our thoughts and opinions, not only about our show, but any other podcasts that you listen to, documentaries that you've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories, breaking news, posts about your pets, funny memes, please come on over and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page, like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. And you can also follow us on Twitter at California pod and on Instagram at California dreaming pod. This week, I'd like to wish a very happy birthday to the following dreamers, Crystal N and Donna M on November 17th, Melissa M on the 20th, Allison M on the 22nd, Andy Von Six on the 23rd, Heather A on the 25th, Kim C on the 27th, Sabri D on the 29th, and Harvey Q on the 30th. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to with an amazing roster of shows with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You will find links to all of our podcasts, as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. And on behalf of myself, my family, all of our dreamers, and everyone at Orbital Jigsaw, I would like to extend our deepest condolences to Tawny Plattis and the rest of the Plattis family for the loss of George Plattis. You know them as the couple behind the Dirty Bits podcast, which had once been a part of the Orbital Jigsaw family. They were a pleasure to know, and I am grateful to have had the opportunity to work with them. They welcomed California Dreaming into the Orbital Jigsaw Network. They provided me with a wealth of knowledge that has been invaluable throughout this journey. The podcasting world has definitely lost a truly talented, genuine, kind, and remarkable person. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.